0: Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of 1 Peter and the fourth chapter. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and the guys will get you a copy. Maybe they won't. Here we go. Get your copy, raise your hand real high. Maybe you don't have a Bible at all, so feel free to take that home with you. You just left your Bible here. When you're done with that, leave this one here so we can use it again. And it's it's 1 Peter Here we go, way over on this side. All right, thank you. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, and the verse we're going to look at are verses 12 uh, through 19. And the heading in my Bible on this section is, share the sufferings of Christ. Now, that, in a way, has been the theme for the last four weeks. All right, any other Bibles? Right there. Anybody else? Okay. Uh, and so we've talked about suffering basically for four weeks. So what I want to do today, and, and this kind of closes that, that section as we move into the, the last chapter of this book, there's an emphasis on serving in particular. So we'll talk about that. When I think of suffering, and, and, and we could use a word like persecution in, in there. When I think of suffering, I, cr- I create in my mind, three big buckets. There could be four, there could be more that you want. One is suffering as a result, and it's the topic in these passages. It's the result of our obedience to Christ and the suffering or persecution that's associated with it. The mistreatment from people around us. The second bucket is suffering for sin or bad decisions. So in our life, we'll will sin, and there's a consequence to it, or we will just do things that are not necessarily sinful, they're just dumb. Uh, I was on campus here Tuesday. Luke did a, a uh, memorial service uh, for Charlie Jolly, who was one of the guys who were on campus here and then went out on the church plant at Gateway. Wonderful guy. And in the course of the message, uh, Luke reminded us of a, of, of a poster that somebody had given me years ago and with a picture of John Wayne and the caption was life is tough especially if you're stupid <laughs> and, and it's really pretty good and, and so that's what it is. so there's suffering you just keep doing the same thing same thing same thing same thing over and over again the third bucket is what i would call the normal wear and tear of life and and we're never exempt from these this is you get old your back hurts your garage door opener breaks Your parents die, or your kids die, or your relationships break down. So, so when we think of suffering, we can take that word suffering, kind of or trials or tribulations, and put them in those three big buckets. In the context here, it's on that first bucket, that persecution idea. But as I said, I found myself so much of of what I prepared as I studied to be repetitious. So what I want to do is is do a a bit of a flyover of, of this passage, spending a little bit of time on verse 12 and some time on verse 19, and then come all the way back around and tie this together by looking at suffering in this general sense, not necessarily the bucket one or two, but that third bucket, suffering in our life. And talk about why do we suffer and what do I do when suffering comes. So hopefully I have great application to it. But the application all stems from what hopefully will be really good theology. So Tim last week took us through verse 7 of chapter 4. That the end of all things is near. So be sound. Be sober. Love one another. Be hospitable. Use your gifts. Now he comes along in verse 12, and it feels like this, in a a way, an abrupt turn. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeals among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange things were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with his exaltation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of your you suffer as murderers or thieves or evildoers or troublesome meddlers. So at least here by way of observation, he's saying there's this suffering and make sure there's this suffering that's attached in verse 12, 13, 14, that's a result of my suffering for Christ Verse, uh, verse 15, but don't be suffering for ill in your life, for things that you've done, sin in your life. 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not ashamed, but it's to the glory of God in his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? He says judgment will begin When it does, we'll be first in this. And again, our judgment as Christians is not condemnation. Our sins have already been judged and placed upon Christ on the cross. That will be a judgment for rewards. But he said, as that judgment comes, there'll then be judgment for those who don't know Christ. And that will be a fiery end. Verse 18, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless man and godless sinner? Then verse 19, therefore... So he pulls a conclusion here. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So that really does tee up the idea of how do I handle or how do I live in the midst of this suffering. As I said, the context for verse 12 comes out of this time of saying, I want you to do this. The end is near. Love one another. Be hospitable. And and he goes right in there and says, Now, don't be surprised that the testing continues. There's kind of a a flinch in our life, most of us have, that as we draw closer to Christ and our life begins to look like his and we take a life that was filled with sin and now it has less sin in it, that all of a sudden hardship comes and though we acknowledge that that we know it's not this way, we kind of think, God, if you were going to zap me, you should have zapped me before. Why are you doing this now? He said, I don't want you to be surprised by this. I became a Christian in 1980. And shortly after that, within weeks, I was introduced to something I didn't even know existed, and it was called a Christian bookstore. (laughs) I didn't even know they were out there. And and now there aren't many. To be honest, there aren't many left. I will tell you that the, the best Christian bookstore in the Valley is in the back of this campus. And we have guys from all over the country will comment on that. It's not that we have hundreds of thousands of titles, we don't, but just great stuff in there. And the independent Christian bookstore is, is almost maybe gone in the valley. There may be some left I don't know about. And, and for probably two reasons, one is churches begin to sell books, and two, obviously Amazon just kills these guys. I became a Christian, and my office was in downtown Phoenix, and there was a Christian bookstore on Central, just south of Thomas, and there was another one at 7th Avenue in Osborne. So I went in, maybe I've been a believer a month, and I'm in this Christian bookstore at 7th Avenue in Osborne, and I'm just loading up with books. And as I'm checking out, I, I plop all my books down, and the lady is, is checking me out, and I see this Leather bound gold leaf book called The Promises of God. I'm thinking, well, I got to have that, but I'm running out of money here. I said, have you got a paperback version of this? I don't want to pop for the leather bound. She said, sure. Well, here's what happened, and it took a while. But as I read through the Promises of God book, and as I read through this Bible, I discovered that there were some promises in the Bible that didn't make it to the Promises of God book. Okay. Here's one of them Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This little book is filled with these wonderful promises of all the good blessings and all the prosperity and all the stuff that goes with it. But something like that, which is a promise from God, that as I begin to live for him, there'll be persecution, though most of us are pretty removed from it. But there'll be continued hardship, difficulty that my path is not strewn with roses. Even, even today, there are about 250,000 Christians who are martyred around the world, give their life for Christ. The persecution that we encounter, uh, Sandy and I were just talking about it yesterday. We, we actually, we were talking about this whole lesson yesterday. And, and, and we are talking about it. It, may, it, it seems minuscule. I read in the Sudan that one of the things that they were doing to Christians last year is as they, what they, were, they were killing, they were actually skinning them. Now, all of a sudden saying you may have somebody who makes fun of you at work doesn't seem so bad. I don't, want to, I don't want to dismiss it. I'm saying it's real, but it seems very different. We may experience once in a while some sort of a discrimination at work, maybe. Maybe friends may get passed over for a job. Maybe old friends who make fun of you. We've had uh, in the church uh, families who've been literally declared dead by their family because they came to Christ. Especially at this time of year, really a tough time for them. We want all the family get together and all that, and they don't talk to him. The, 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 the grandparents might call and talk to the grandkids, but they ignore the parents. So there, there's some level of that. He said, don't be sad. He's writing to them, and they're being persecuted. They're, 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 it's costing them everything to follow Christ. Remember, that's what we talked about at the very beginning of this book. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, those who, who are alien and scattered. So he said, don't be surprised by this. Don't, don't fall into the trap of thinking that somehow, as I walk closer with him in their context, that this persecution will be removed. And the same thing is true of us. We, should, we shouldn't think that somehow, as we grow closer to Christ, that, that there is an absence of those who would persecute us in our way or that the suffering and the pain of the world would somehow avoid us. James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. You see the same thing here in verse 12. Don't be surprised by these fiery ordeals among you, which come upon you for your testing. The idea there is like the the proving grounds where they would take an automobile that they've tested and manufactured. Now they take it to the proving ground and now they begin to drive it to see what's really there. Well, these tests come and he said, "This this is what they do. They grow you. They mature you. They're spiritual aerobics. Okay. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the test of yourself produces perseverance. So I got up today to come over here, and then shortly after I got up, Sandy got up to run, and so she ran. I, I don't. I think it was like she said it was a short day, so like four and a half miles. And then she comes back and has a, a, her tea, and then at eight o'clock, uh, she goes and swims for an hour, and it's a it's a competitive driving swimming. Okay, and and, and I've law and I'm I I cheer for. Yeah, okay? <laughs> That's about all I do. Make sure her her tea's ready when she gets home. I haven't been to the gym since March, February, really. And and that all started in all this, and then I got kind of sick, and then it got worse. So I'm trying to build back up. I've been walking, and then this is my week to go back to the gym. And I know I'm going to hate this, because I know exactly what's going to happen. I know how sick I'm going to be. I know how much it's going to hurt. I'm really smart. I won't push myself. I'm smart and lazy, that's a good combination. So I won't push myself, but I know this. I I know in my head that I have to push myself physically in order to get physically stronger. God says to us, to get spiritually stronger, there has to be these things called trials, or tests, or suffering. They make us dependent upon him. And and, and life comes at us. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as he evaluates his life, in verse 8, he writes, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Now, let me read you that from Eugene Peterson, the paraphrase. He, He says this, we're surrounded and battered by troubles, but we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do, but we know God knows what to do. We've been spiritually terrorized, but God hasn't left our side. We've been thrown down, but we're not broken. And then he adds, and this gets into really the text in front of us, what they did to Jesus, they'll do to us. So what Peter's saying is, don't be surprised by this. Don't come upon these things as they were in some way, happening, strange things happening to you. The idea of happening to you has the idea of just chance. That there's something behind all of this. That God is still in control in the midst of this. Verse 13, to the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ. Now, this isn't as a redemptive suffering. But as you share for the sake of Christ, to that degree... He seems to say, to that degree, you can be rejoicing because you will be blessed and rewarded for that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And that's what he's saying here in verse 13 and 14. This idea of of suffering, there's a time, there's a hardship, there's a difficulty, but at the end of this time, there is that reward, there's that time. He, He says there is the idea of the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. John MacArthur writes this, it's not merely because of the suffering of the Holy Spirit that rests on believers, but as when he came on and departed from the Old Testament prophets, rather that he's already being in the believer's life permanently, and that he gives them supernatural relief in the midst of his suffering. That the idea of the peace of God that passes all understanding is not to eliminate necessarily the suffering or the hardship or the circumstances, but to climb in there in the midst of it with you. He, He rests upon you, the present tense. It's to give relief. He gives relief. Now, verse 15, don't be stupid. Don't be corrupt. Don't be a murderer or a thief. Those were capital uh, crimes in the ancient world. Or evildoer. It's a term that's all-encompassing of all sorts of crimes. He said, don't do that. And then he adds, or troublesome meddlers. So, if you took them on a a path of severity, you, you have, here's the murderers and the evildoers and the thief, and here's this one down here who's kind of a meddler. And other people's business. Again, MacArthur writes this, the Christians are never to be troublemakers or agitators in the society or in the place of work. They may confront sin in the lives of other believers and help administer church discipline or challenge unbelievers with the gospel and exhort false fellow saints to greater levels of godliness, but regarding others' private matters, they do not concern them. Believers should never intrude inappropriately. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. He's saying in, in the midst of all of this, there's no benefit. If you perform a capital offense and you're penalized, you shouldn't be surprised by that. And if you're poking your nose in other people's business and you suffer as a result of it, that's a waste of time and energy. I don't want you doing that. Verse uh, 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not ashamed, but it's to glorify the name of God. The idea there is to, to praise God for the privilege of honoring suffering, be associated with him. So that in verse 19, he can say, those also who suffer according to the will of God. So it's, it's it, it could be more than two, but at least two things. It could be that the suffering is the will of God, or the way they approach it in obedience, really submission to that, is the will of God. Those who suffer according to the will of God, and, and I'll make the point, because it's, it's really important, is that God may want hardship and difficulty and, and challenge in your life. I, I've shared with you the last couple of weeks that, that about seven weeks ago, Sandy and I became direct TV people. They've been Cox people all along, and I've spent hours on hold, and finally I had it. And uh, <laughs> That's not a shot at, at Cox. I loved Cox. I stayed with him a long time. I was a faithful, I was a faithful customer. Uh, but we went to DirecTV. On Direct TV, we have all these channels now. There's a lot. I'm discovering them all the time. Great channels. But on 363, 363 to 373, are all, now, in quotes, Christian television. Church channel, all that stuff. And it is on certain days, and I've used this picture imagery with you before. It's like drinking false doctrine out of a fire hydrant when you turn it on. It's bad. Well, the other night, there's two guys that are particularly bad. And, uh, and to which you would join Sandy's chorus, which would say what? Turn the channel. Turn the channel. He wants to know who it is. Turn the channel. I said, I will. I just need a little more material here. I'm getting close. (laughs) And so so this guy is talking about God doesn't want you sick. And God doesn't want you struggling. And and I just, I don't see that in the scripture. God brings about all this stuff, allows all this stuff in Job's life. And we can can look at that and say, here's some some serious suffering and pain that God uses for Job's good in this case. That's what Job says at the end of it, right? Before I heard about you, now I've seen you. So it's for Job's good and ultimately for God's glory. So in in our life comes these things. Now, here comes this suffering, this hardship. Again, in the context here, I want to remain true, it's the the persecution, but I'm going to add to to it all the suffering and wear and tear of life. He said, I want you to entrust. It's a banker's term referring to a deposit for safekeeping. He's saying, I want you to entrust your soul. I want you to entrust your life to the faithful creator. It's the only time specifically that God is referred to in the New Testament that God's called creator. Here's what he's saying. In the midst of all this, and we can get from verse 12, that implication that this may catch you off guard or it may... It, it may cause you to particularly kind of regroup, maybe even question or doubt. I want you to entrust your soul to the creator, the author of everything, the designer of all, who sustains it all, who began it all, who continued it all. You can entrust him soul, with your soul, and then here's what you do. Do what is right. So I want to make full circle here. I want to talk mostly about the suffering, hardship, difficulty in our life, it's that third bucket. It's kind of the wear and tear of living. Okay, I don't, I don't think anybody is surprised or when you really talk about it, somehow thinks it's not right or fair that if you sin, there may be consequences to it, suffering consequences. If you do stupid things over an extended period of time, there may be stupid things inevitably result in suffering. But that third part, that wear and tear, R.C. Sproul writes this, to remove God from human suffering is to quit the pilgrimage of faith. God majors in suffering. He displays himself in holy involvement in all suffering. Rather than be removed from our suffering, it's those circumstances that allow us to see God at work. To be reminded that he's in control. I uh, as I said, I, I wasn't feeling well last week. And then kind of laid around Monday and Tuesday, came in here Wednesday and taught, uh, went to a meeting, got sick in the middle of the meeting, went home, I had to get for PL on Thursday, went downtown for the early morning 7 o'clock meeting, got sick right before that meeting, and then texted Frank and said, can you take noon? And then I went home and, and kind of just laid around and worked on this I'm having a hard time concentrating watched a lot of football yesterday. I could concentrate on that and, and but but in the midst of that i I saw a lot of a lot of TV and a lot of news and a lot of stuff and you get the sense i mean it's a sense like everything is wrong. Notre Dames playing for the national title that doesn 't seem right. Politics seems upside down the economy i don 't know who you believe but it's teetering on an edge, and we're going to fall off, and it isn't going to matter, it isn't going to matter, and after a while, this it's what I tell you all the time, if you have a steady diet of Fox News, and Sean Hannity, and all these guys, it's going to screw you up, it's going to eventually, and, and, and potentially, screw, I think screw up your spiritual life, even, now if you're, listen, you're driving around listening to that, you're so better off punching up 90.3, or 105.5, but I'm listening to that, and I, I'm just, I'm sinking. I'm sinking physically. I'm sinking emotionally. I'm saying, this is, this is awful. The main calendar is right. We're all going to be blown up on, what is it, the 12th or what? 21st, 21st. So I, I'm going, I, I, I don't know. Well, well, as you look around the world, and, and maybe you don't even need to look to the world. You can just look to your own life. You get a sense that things aren't good. And and it can go in a couple of ways. You feel like you're doing everything right, but it's not working. And and God comes along and reminds us over and over and over and over again that if our faith and trust is in free market capitalism or the Republican Party or the Tea Party or the Democrat Party, we're going to be disappointed. Because at that point, we've made those things a false god. That our faith and trust should be in him. So I'm going to study uh, every Friday. I didn't make it yesterday, or Friday. And we're, uh, it's on Scripture Memory this week. And I thought, oh my gosh, I know how this is going to be. They're going to go around the room, and they're going to call on everybody and say, give us your verse. So there's one thing that I always find music because I meet people and I go, you know, there's a passage in the Bible that's meant so much to me. And God's used it in so many ways, and it's my favorite passage. And I say, really, what is it? I really can't remember it at this moment. You know, and and I get it, there could be just a block, but it seems odd. It seems like if it's that big a deal, you ought to remember it. So I know that's gonna in that room they're gonna ask me. And I thought, what passage? And the one that came up first to me was Romans 8.28. I don't know why, I'm sure the passage would change as time went on, but Romans 8.28. And we know. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And, and I take that passage, that verse, Romans eight twenty eight, and put it right in the context of this whole idea of suffering. And we know God causes all things to work together for good. As we've said to you many times, if we have a Bible that only has one verse in it, and that's that verse, and we know it's true, we know God is all-knowing and all-powerful, or that couldn't be true. And then I put to it the rest of this book that says he loves me and cares for me. That in the middle of this suffering and pain, I've got to understand that they may be out of my control, but it's not out of God's control. And one of the things that I learned a long time ago is that when suffering comes, a lot of times the first thing we jettison is sound theology. Either for fear that we can't fit it in somehow or we want to protect God's reputation. So people, all of a sudden, you suffer and and you're trying to put it in a box. I was a Christian for about three years. There was a book that came out and I had all these people recommend it to me. I finally went to the bookstore. There were a couple of Christian uh, uh, celebrities who'd endorsed it. So I got it and I'm reading it. And as I'm reading it, each page gets worse. And the book was called, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And when you get to chapter seven, this should have been the tip off. Chapter seven's title was, God Can't Do Everything, but He Can Do Some Very Important Things. <laughs> <laughs> now, we all, in the sterile environment of this room, laugh at that. But when you're in the middle of hurt and pain, a lot of times your head goes, Where's God? I get it. I had the same thing when I read it. I just laughed out loud when I read the chapter. But this author was moved by the death of a son, if I remember from a traffic accident, and was try, try, trying, trying to figure all this out, and his answer was to take God and minify him and make him impotent and say, God, I, I know if God could have, he would have stopped it. Well, that's not true. God either causes or allows everything, or he's not God. I was uh, teaching in Tucson. I I had to laugh because a couple Fridays ago, people kept saying, because ASU was playing the U of A, people kept asking me, who's going to win, who's going to win? I said, that's easy, ASU, because no matter what happens in the game, they get to leave Tucson. So that's an easy, that that isn't even hard. Every other year, ASU automatically wins that game. They don't have to stay down there. So I digress. I digress. So uh, now a long time ago, it's when we did evening services only. I was in Tucson teaching at a a pretty large church down there on Sunday morning. And one of the things I hate is a a guest guy who drops his load and then disappears. I hate that. Hang around. You're not going to talk to everybody, but get at some people. That's one of the challenges we have when we're in two locations here. For me to get in and here and see some people, get over there and see people, it Just it just it, it can't be done. Okay? But I'm down there. And I told them, one of my pet peeves is the guy who drops his load and leaves. Now, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to drop my load and leave. Okay? Because i got to be back up to Phoenix within about two and a half hours. So when I end, they're going to play a song. I'm going out the back door. It's not because I don't care about you or like you or, or I've got a fire or a pill to take or something. I, I got to get back there. That's why I'm going. So I get out. I'm going down this hallway, and there's a lady, and she's standing behind and pushing a lady in a wheelchair. And if there was a way to avoid it, I, I would have. But I couldn't. So I came, and I said, hey, how are you this morning? Good, fine, very, very nice. And I'm, I'm ready to move on. And the gal in the wheelchair said, I really enjoyed your message. And the message had been on suffering. And I said, you know, I feel a little embarrassed. And, you know, my, my, my suffering is if they, you know, Starbucks makes my drink wrong. Uh, you, you have a very different level here. And she said, no, no, no. What you said was exactly true. And, and, and I, I didn't say anything there, but my point would have been, I hope so, because I thought it was really scripturally based. But she said, in my life, I, I was the most import, impatient person in the whole world. And then this happened. And I became literally a totally different person. And she said, and I quote, God really taught me patience. Now, am I saying that if you're an impatient person, God's going to put you? I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's, there's what happens in the midst of that suffering. I was teaching in Forest Home, and uh, they wanted to do a QA and a at the end of the last session. And so there's a guy in the back, and, and it, bad acoustics I don't hear particularly well. And I couldn't understand. I couldn't. Understand a thing he said. And it was clear that he was having some trouble speaking. And I said, Listen, I don't know. Why don't you come up afterwards and we'll deal with it? And he came up and, and he said, and I'm not making fun of him at all. I want you to understand kind of how it was. But he said, Ah I, I I'm I'm sorry. My my mind sometimes races and my tongue can't keep up. And I said, Well, pal, I got that. And he said, what happened to me is I was in an accident, and his friend told about it, a car wreck and all this. In a coma for three and a half months and had some obviously lingering damage. And he said, I, I-, I want to be an evangelist because my life is so filled with joy. And it's joy in the midst of this suffering and this pain. And his friend said, and it's the joy it brings to everybody around him. So I step back and I kind of look at it and I say, boy, this is a terrible thing. I, I, I always told this story, but it was always speculative Till one day I sat down with Dave Drevecki and I said, I've got a really bold question, let me ask it. And, and I said, here's a story I've told a million times, is it true? Because I'm speculating. He said, yes. So that's good. So Dave Drecki is pitching, all-star pitcher, and he's praying, he and his wife. And they're praying, God, use us. We have a platform, use us. So his arm kind of snaps and they have to do some surgery and they they put him back and he's out pitching one day and he throws and as he lets it go, the the infielder said it was like a gun went off. And when they got in, it was cancer and they had to take his arm. And everybody's saying, oh, isn't this tragic? Isn't this terrible? I understand the hardship, but I would assert that God's saying, Dave's praying, God used me in a significant way. And God said, I'm fine with that, but I'm going to need that left arm. (laughs) And Revecki said, that is exactly how I see it. So there have been platforms. He's been with Barbara Walters, millions of people, literally. He's been touched through that. So we look at an event and say, isn't that awful? And we see it as kind of one event cut out of a period of time. And we fail to understand this is all part of God's story. All that caused me to write these two sentences. God has structured and organized our lives to include problems and suffering. Your mission is not to stop the suffering, but find him in the midst of the hurt and the pain, not to be absorbed by the pain and try to find a way out. Now, I'm not saying that don't be silly, and if there's suffering, try to alleviate it, but not prematurely or not at the expense of of, of failing to learn from that event. So if I'm in the midst of some painful situation, it is totally fair and wise to ask myself, "How did I get here? What's God doing? What's he teaching me? And I say this not just to you, but to your friends. I get it. So along comes a friend, and, and, and I, I hope I don't sound cold and uncaring because I'm not. Along comes a friend and they have this hardship in their life, in their life and you do a bake sale and a garage sale, and you raise this money, and you get this money for them. And never take the time to say, gee, you've got this financial pressure. It can only be really one of two things. Either you're not making enough money. The government could learn this. Either you're not making enough money, or you're spending too much money. And if it's the latter, spending too much money, all of a sudden, your garage sales are going to become an annual event. You haven't taught them anything. They haven't learned anything. That's not to say that there isn't also, I hope this is clear, that there are all sorts of things that happen in my life that are way beyond my control, but this suffering comes for a reason, for a purpose. What's God doing? So here you go, two questions. We've got about 15 minutes. Why do people suffer, and what do I do when suffering comes? So you can probably Google, some of you have at home, the old uh, Wilmington Bible, You know, all those, all those long lists, lists of Bible stuff. And and in it, there's there's a section on why do people suffer. I have 25 reasons. I'm obviously not going to read them to you. But but just to give you a flavor as you sit and go, why would God do this? Well, the first three, to produce joy and patience and maturity. So I saw that in Larry Wright's life. Now, I did not know Larry when he didn't have the arthritis. But he would tell me that before he had that arthritis, he he would call himself the most selfish man in the world. I knew him, in my mind, as the most legitimately humble man and by far caring man that I'd ever been around. And I contend to this day that that's what the suffering and the pain did for him and the hardship did for him. It purifies your life. It teaches you. It, it allows you to, to confess sin when we do sin that results in suffering. This is my favorite. It reveals ourselves to ourselves. Sometimes we're so cocky and arrogant and I could handle anything and along comes this little thing and you fold like a cheap suit. Or sometimes you're going, I just don't know, I'm so weak, I don't know if I could handle anything. And then God gives you that blessing and strength beyond anything you can imagine. It drives us closer to God. There's no question about that. My prayer life is much deeper when, when the scan comes back with a spot on it, than when the scan comes back clean. I tend to be more reliant or draw closer to him when the deal blows than when the deal makes. When the child's not sick than when the child is sick. It prepares us for ministry. It allows us to say to people, it's 2 Corinthians 1, it prepares us to go and sit down with somebody and say, listen, I've been there. I I know what you're going through. It shows us the sovereignty of God. And in a way, it gives us the ability to teach. Begin to understand the testing of God. So, so why do people suffer? There's a list of them you can add to it. And the broad overall bumper sticker answer, for our good and his glory. Now, I'll give you eight things to do when the suffering comes. Number one, and you should be able to get this from 1 Peter 4.12, Don't be surprised. It's part of the Christian life. I I believe it's false. It's either a false reading of the scripture or it's false teaching or you're a charlatan when you say God wants you healthy and wealthy. God may want you struggling. Why? Well, I just gave you a list of them. Don't be surprised by this. You're not immune from it. Because you became a Christian did not mean you you left the the pilgrimage, not just of faith, but of life. Number two, commit yourself to the Lord. We studied, uh, oh, I don't know, how many, three, four, five months ago, the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, Daniel is about to confront the the king and all the, the powers of the kingdom. And it says in Daniel 1, 8, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. That at the very beginning, you resolve the passage you have, if your Bible's still open, the passage you have in First Peter 4.19, that you're going to entrust your life, deposit your life on him, in him, trusting him. Number three, and if you're a, a, a really bright person who's here today, maybe somebody drug you, you're visiting from out of town or whatever, this is your version of penance. Um, Somehow you're here today. You're going to hate this. Sandy and I were, were talking. Uh, we went out for dinner last night, and we were talking, and she said, I think being really, really, really smart is a curse. And I said, well, I have no experiential data to support it. That's never been a challenge for me. But number three is don't try to understand all this. One, one of the things that I I see among really smart people, is they try to reduce God or think they need to reduce God to a set of equations that they can easily understand and comprehend or explain. And some of God is inexplicable. He's bigger than you, he's smarter than you, he's more powerful than you are. He doesn't owe you an answer. It's arrogant to think, I need to be able to understand everything. I need to know what God's doing, is all I need to approve of it. Number four, realize you aren't the only person that ever has gone through this. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You won't be tested beyond that which you can endure. These are tests and temptations, difficulties that are common to man. Rarely, out of the 7 billion people on the planet, are you the only one that's ever, ever gone through this. I have, as I said, not been feeling well, but it hasn't been like the flu I had in the past. The last time I had the flu... Uh, maybe three years ago. And, and I remember Susan. Susan was sick at the time, so it was Susan taking care of me. I was really in bad shape. And she came in, can I get you anything? I was, no, no, no. Might want to call Faulkner Funeral Home because I can feel it's right And she left. I said, Susan, 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 come back. I said, you need to know no one has ever had the flu as bad as I had the flu right now. And sometimes that's how you feel. I'm the only one. And then it gets, and I will tell you about suffering and pain and hardship, and it can get worse. It becomes very, you become self-absorbed in this, and it's hard to get out of it, so that you become identified with your affliction. So that every time anybody sees you, they'll say, well, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And you either give them a, a relatively insincere, oh, I'm fine, everything's great, or you begin to unpack it, and once you just sink worse and worse and worse into this. So it's important to understand there are a lot of people who are going through what you go through. Number five, you would assume this, pray. The very act of praying acknowledges that, that, that God has the capacity just to not only to hear us, but to do something about it, if he's so inclined, to pray. It's bigger than me. It's beyond me. Six, thank God for it. So you're gathered around the Thanksgiving table 10 days ago. Let's pray. God, thank you for my mom. Thank you for my dad. Thank you for my house. Thank you for this job. Thank you for this car. But nobody heard, Father, thank you for this cancer. Thank you for this unemployment. Well, how can I be thankful? Well, we've been through this. Let's do it one more time. The testing of my faith produces endurance. God's in the process of drawing me closer and closer to him. When I pray, God, I want to break the tape. I want to be there at the end. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. He hears, let me be tried and tested and suffer. Spiritual aerobics. Number seven, and eight, I'll just say quickly, don't become a martyr. And eight is a version of that. Don't suffer needlessly. I'm sure you can add to that list. But don't become a martyr. There there are certain people that you meet that it seems the only time they're comfortable in their life is when there's turmoil. And it's as though it's like one of those, you know, the, and you see it in this time of year, those, those kind of, they're like the little bubble with a sleigh ride in the house and you shake it up and the snow's there. It's light like, and then you see it settle down. It's, it's like in their life, they're constantly shaking this up. for for whatever reason, because they thrive in that or they're problem solvers or whatever it is. But, but don't create these, these points of stress and hardship and suffering just for the sake of it. Sounds odd. There's a, there's a moment in Jesus' life where he comes upon a sick man and he asks him this question. I thought it was odd, but then I didn't give it a great deal of thought until I heard Larry teach about it. And, and he said to the sick man, do you want to be healed? And I thought, that's going to and then Larry said, said, I'm very sick. And I have to tell you, this will sound weird to you, but he said, I, there's some real benefit to it. I get great parking places everywhere I go. <laughs> Nobody expects me to do anything. Sue never asked me to take out the garbage. Sue never asked me to mow the grass. Don't suffer needlessly. Uh, Larry's summary of that was, you've heard it before, right? I'd rather suffer obediently than prosper disobediently. So on the surface, it looks odd. I'd rather suffer than prosper. But now he qualifies it. I'd rather suffer obediently, okay, than prosper disobediently. All right. Can you clarify that just a little bit? Yeah. I'd rather suffer obediently than prosper disobediently because I know, there's that word again, that's what we say, what we know trumps what we feel, because I know my obedient suffering is as temporary as my disobedient prospering. This is all temporary. No matter, and we don't say it in some flip, non-caring way, but no matter how bad this gets, it can only last a lifetime. That's the perspective I have. I step back. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the Christian hope of resurrection sends a man back into his life on earth in an entirely new way. That whole idea of the afterlife, the passage we just looked at, the reward, the exaltation that comes when Christ comes back. That's the thing, one of the things that sustain us. Uh, Years ago, I I came across a prayer. It's anonymous, attributed to a, a Confederate soldier. And I was preparing Wednesday morning for priority living. And the lesson on Wednesday morning is very similar to this. And so I'm sitting there, and this prayer popped into my mind. And I thought, well, I have no chance. I mean, I have nothing filed. Once I'm done with this, I'll lose these notes. So I thought, there's no way I can find it. But the power, and Google is an amazing engine. If you can just, if you can capture a phrase, it is, it is awesome how fast it can get you there. Sure enough, I typed in the little phrase that I remembered, and up it came. So let me read to you, this to you, and then Jake's going to come and close our time together here in the, in the chapel. We'll go to communion over in the conference center. The guys will come and adjourn you there. But let me read you this. I I, I don't know why. I really like this. I asked God for strength that I might achieve and I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given humility that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life, and I was given life that I might enjoy all things. Here's the the summary. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. And I think of that in the context of suffering because I I almost lose a sense of what's good or bad. It's the Riveki thing. And along comes this cancer, and I get on this limited scale, I, I wouldn't write it out. Isn't that interesting? I wouldn't write out God, I want cancer. I would write out God, I want a platform, and I want to be used. So, in, in a circumstantial sense, there's this, almost this case where I, I don't even know good from bad. Not talking moral now. How many times have you heard something comes into somebody's life, and they say, I, I wouldn't want it, I wouldn't ask for it, but I wouldn't trade it for the world? God, God shut this down, and there was this amazing opportunity over here. So I say that by way of encouragement. I hope you, you understand. If you're here today, and, and you're suffering and you're hurting, that is a result of a personal relationship with Christ, that suffering and hurting and pain has meaning, in the broadest sense, for your own good. We may not understand that for a while. And ultimately, for his glory. And so you can entrust yourself with him. He's trustworthy. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He didn't blink. He didn't miss it. He either caused it or allowed it and he'll use it ultimately for your good. And we know God causes all things to work together for good. to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's us. Well, the thing that makes all of that have meaning is the cross. Let me pray as Jake comes to, to lead us in communion. Father, thank you that we can look at a lesson like this and the suffering and the hardship and the pain, and be reminded that though things feel like they're out of control, they're not out of your control. God, we pray that that you would continue to sustain us, that in the midst of suffering and hurt and pain, you would use it in our life to draw us closer to you. So let us be a, a shining light to people around us. Father, we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.